The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. The scripture reading today is from Luke 16, 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried to, by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who, those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they have also come, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Praise, Praise be, be to Christ. Christ. Thank you, Jack. It takes a lot of courage to get up here in front of all these people and do that. He did it twice today. He did a great job, buddy, both times. Thank you. So um, if you are here with us for the first time uh, today, we're going to be talking about hell. Um, welcome. <laughs> Why does a subject like this disturb us so much? I, I, I think it might be because of our situation. Uh, most of us are from Western culture. Uh, most of us in this room uh, have relatively comfortable lives, relative safety, and we're polite because we're from the South. Uh, and it goes like this. The thinking goes like this, especially in Western society. If there is a God, then of course He's supportive of us, and that's what He's there for, to be supportive of us. And so that means He must be loving, it means He must be forgiving, and it means He must accept everybody. And, you know, any idea of God being a judge um, or getting upset about things. That's sort of an ancient, unsophisticated idea from primitive cultures, but in today's day and age, it's offensive. Now, if injury, injustice, 
or abuse make it into your situation or into the situation of somebody that you care about, your ideas may change about this. You might tend to rethink your idea of God, and you might stop asking, why would anybody believe in a God who judges people and doesn't accept everybody? Your thinking might change to, why am I not offended? Why have I not up to now been offended by the idea of a forgiving God? whose forgiveness is available to everyone. Why am I not offended by that? Rachel Denholander famously confronted Larry Nasser, the serial child abuser who worked for Michigan State Athletics, particularly women's athletics, and systematically abused women, took advantage of them, and she was one of his victims. And and she declared to him two things in, in her talk. As you, many of you have probably seen it. She said, number one, hell is reserved as a place for people like you. And as a Christian, I can say that there's a God who's a God of grace who can forgive people like you. Are you offended by either aspect of her message? Jeffrey Dahmer, the famous serial killer, was reported to have converted to Christianity right before he was put to death for his crimes. Why am I not offended by a forgiving God and the idea of a forgiving God? A Nazi prison camp guard approached Corey Ten Boom after she gave one of her uh, most well-known talks on forgiving others just as God in Christ has forgiven you. And she was approached by this Nazi prison camp guard after that talk, who was also one of the most violent guards at the camp where she and her sister were detained and where Betsy, her sister, was tortured and died. And he comes up to her and says, since those days, I remember you, I'm sure you remember me, since those days I've become a Christian. So tell me, do you forgive me? Or if you've seen the latest uh, Netflix series, I think this is the most popular Netflix series going right now, now called When They See Us. It, it chronicles um, an experience that, that five uh, teenagers, teenage boys had of, of being falsely accused of assault and rape uh, in Central Park and being incarcerated and spending years in prison, some of them tortured by fellow inmates and also guards in the prisons, for never having committed a crime deserving to, to be in prison in the first place. And, and finally, somebody came later, years later, and confessed to the crime, and they were released. But you watch this documentary, if you've seen it, and, and you get so angry and especially if you bring into the equation, God can forgive the people who did that to them. So, while we're on the subject of being upset at the notion of a God who judges people, let's also talk about how upset we ought to be about the idea of a God who forgives 
every kind of person. Your perspective depends on your situation. If you've been sheltered, you're probably going to be offended by the idea that there's a God who judges sin. If you've experienced injustice, injury, and abuse, you're probably going to have a different outlook on that. If, if the Bible shapes your reality, and this is our subject for today, if, if the Bible shapes your reality, if you're a Christian, um, and I, I don't assume that everybody here is, and um, I, I hope that not everybody is a Christian here, because I, I want to be the kind of church where people who aren't Christian see this as a place where they can come and wrestle with and explore Christianity and know that they're not going to be judged and punished by the people here for that, okay? So, but if the Bible does shape your reality, you are a person who believes that hell and judgment are just as real as heaven and love. And if, if you're uncertain about that, um, the Bible is pretty unequivocal about it. Romans chapter 1 talks about the wrath of God that's, that's revealed against the sin of humanity. Jesus spoke more about the subject of judgment than all of the other uh, writers in the Bible combined. He taught more about hell than He taught about heaven and love. Matthew 25, He talks about hell as a place of eternal fire and punishment. Matthew 5 and 18 the fire of hell awaits those who reject God. And here, Luke chapter 16, we've got a rich man tortured. And so what I want to do is, is wrestle with three questions together. What is hell? How do people get there? And how can we escape it? And so the first question, what is hell? Here's the most basic definition I can come up with based on my study of Scripture. Hell is a conscious awareness, an awakeness that you can never get rid of. And the rich man in the parable is experiencing this. He's awake and he's aware of his condition. And that condition, the essence of that condition is to be separated from the loving presence of God. You'll see that, that one character <laughs> does not show up in this parable, and that's God Himself. I'll get to that a little bit later. And so we don't know if the Bible's language about fire and brimstone is to be taken literally or metaphorically. We're not really sure because none of us has been there to find out. But if it is metaphor metaphorical, then, 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 then hell is actually something equal to or worse than fire. <clears throat> and it represents three things. It represents disintegration, self-centeredness, and pride. And so, so disintegration, fire, if you set something on fire, it does not annihilate the thing. It simply changes the composition of the thing. And so, so if, if you're a purist on the grill and you use charcoals uh, instead of gas, uh, you'll know that if you, if you light a charcoal on fire and it, you know, it, it, it burns, right? But when it burns, it doesn't go away. It's not annihilated. It doesn't, you know, evaporate into the atmosphere. It's, it's just essentially a brick of dust. You know, it, it once had all this latent potential to, to create light and heat, and now it has no potential for light and no potential for heat, and yet it's still there. That's a pretty good description metaphorically of what hell is like for a human being. You are still there, 
but you have no more potential and no more opportunity for light and heat. You know, in heaven, we have two people pictured here, Abraham, who's the father of those who have faith, and a man named Lazarus, whose name means he whom God helps. Now, Lazarus was a poor man uh, in this life, and then, you know, when he, he dies and he's received in glory, uh, and his name is he whom God's hel- God helps. Now, what distinguishes these two men from the rich man is that they both still have a name. The rich man no longer has a name. He's just referred to as rich man. He's the guy who no longer has a self. You know, like ashes, he still exists, but he's been diminished. He's isolated. He's invisible. He's he's insignificant. And so if Lazarus' name means he whom God helps, the name for this man would tragically be something like he whom God helps no more. It's like the worst, most dreadful Edgar Allan Poe poetry. Like, it's, it's dark. It sounds harsh. But here's the thing, and I'll get to this in a minute too. The only people that God does not help are the people who do not want God to help them. It's very important to understand that, 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 that hell is more a self-selected thing than it is anything else. One of the characteristics of, of being there in that place is a self-centeredness that you cannot get out of. So the Westminster Shorter Catechism was just, was just part of our, you know, sort of constitutional documents in our, our, our Christian tradition of, you know, Reformed Presbyterianism. Uh, it's a series of questions and answers, and, and one, uh, the first question is, what is the chief end of man? What's the, what's the primary purpose of a human being? And the answer is, man's chief end, the primary purpose of a human being is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Light and heat, that's gone. That's gone. No possibility for that anymore for the rich man, for, the, for this rich man. When, when Jesus was asked what's the greatest commandment in, in all of, of the Bible, Jesus says, well, that's, it, it's, it's, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. This man has lost all capacity for that. He has completely turned in on himself in self-centeredness. What began in his lifetime continues into eternity. In his lifetime, what, what he had done was, was he had built his identity He had built and constructed his sense of self, his sense of being around wealth and luxury. He's described in this way in verse 19. There was a rich man clothed in purple and fine linen, and he feasted sumptuously every day at his gate. In other words, right under his nose. At the end of his driveway every day was laid a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores, so he needed health care. He longed to be fed by the crumbs from the rich man's table, so he was malnourished. The dogs came. These were scavenger dogs. These weren't like house pets. These were like wolves and, 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 and uh, you know, predatorial dogs. They came and licked his sores, so he clearly needed shelter and protection that wasn't given to him. And it says that he died alone, and he died from neglect. He needed community, and it wasn't given to him. All these things were happening right under, 
under the rich man's nose, and he, he turned the other way, a lot like the priest and the Levite do, the two professional ministers, the two professional religious people in the parable of the Good Samaritan, while the Good Samaritan goes and helps the man who's, who fits the same description as the poor man here at the end of, of uh, the rich man's driveway. It says that they pass by on the other side. They look the other way and just keep walking. You know, Jesus, when He gives the, the sheep and the goats parable, and he, he says, you know, on the day of judgment, when that time comes, there are going to be some to whom I'm going to say, I was hungry and you gave me food, thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you gave me no hospitality. I was naked and you gave me no clothes. And, and these people will say to me, when did all these things happen? When did we neglect you in these ways? And He, he will say, whatever you didn't do for the least of these, whatever you didn't do, with the sore, sick, weak, wounded man at the edge of your own driveway, you didn't do to me. So there's this self-centeredness that just continues with him, and, and it manifests in, in a pretty arrogant posture in hell. Like you'd, you'd think that when, when you're when you're in the condition that this man is in, that there would have been maybe a little bit of humbling and a little bit of sort of reconsideration of, of things, reevaluation of things. This, this blows me away. He doesn't ask for rescue. You know, he has, somehow he has access to Abraham who's up in heaven, and he, he doesn't say, hey, can you figure out a way to get me out of here? No, instead of that, what does he say? Hey, send me a servant, that, that, that Lazarus right by, by you, um, send me that guy. Uh, tell him to bring me some water. It's a little warm down here. Tell Lazarus to bring me water. Maybe a little Freon too, a little bit of shade. And then, so he, he asks for a servant, and then he says, and after Lazarus serves me, I also want him to be my messenger, to go tell my family about the situation I'm in right now, and to warn them. I mean, he's he's still kind of Mr. Bossy Pants, even in this condition. Like, there's still no humility. He would rather be a boss in hell than leaning into the bosom of Abraham in heaven. You know, his ultimate concern is not to get out of this place. All he wants is hell with amenities, he wants a continuation of the very life that got him there in the first place. You know, one of the commentaries that I read this past week preparing for this said that hell is a freely chosen identity, and this, this resonates with Kierkegaard's you know, definitions as well. Hell is a freely chosen identity based on something besides God going on forever. Okay, so how do people get there? Transition to the second question. It's a progression. It's a progression. A lot like the, the happy Smeagol who, who eventually became, you know, the miserable Gollum after, after he became enslaved to the ring. Do you notice Abraham refers to the rich man as child? It's, the term is, tech, it's the Greek word technon, which is a term of endearment. Child. You know, so presumably the rich man was raised in the Jewish community, raised in the temple, raised in the Old Testament scriptures, raised in faith. But somewhere along the way, his, his ears had gone deaf to God 
You know, he says, tell my relatives. And, and, and the comeback is, well, if I tell your relatives, it won't do any good because they're going to respond in the same way that you did. If they don't believe, if you don't believe Moses and the prophets, if you don't embrace what's written in the scriptures, you're not going to believe even if somebody raises from the dead. So here's, here's where I'll kind of go on a, a related rabbit trail, teenagers. Teenagers and uh, another group that we can call nominal Christians. People are Christian in name only. In other words, you're, you're here for some reason. Um, you call yourself a Christian for, for whatever reason. Maybe you're born into a Christian family or, you know, calling yourself a Christian helps you get into certain social circles or professional networks in Nashville. Um, you, 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 you call yourself a Christian for reasons other than Christ. Okay, so... So teenagers or, or nominal Christians who, who might say to themselves, getting serious about God, that's going to come later for me. I'm going to get serious about God one day. I respect people who do that, but it's, it's getting serious about God is really for the older years because, you know, right now I want to do this and this and this and experience this and this and this and this, but I'll get there. I'll get to it. Here's the thing. So Ecclesiastes speaks into this mindset with some of the wisest, most important words ever spoken. Remember your Creator in the days that you were young. Or as it says elsewhere in Scripture, today is the day of salvation. Now is the day of repentance. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. You'd be hit by a truck, and even if you don't get hit by a truck, don't think that you're going to desire God more when you're 58 than you do when you're 18 or when you're 28, because you're not. Because this kind of stuff progresses like an addiction. And the way an addiction works is like this. It starts recreational, then it progresses to a hobby, and then to a habit, and then to a need, and then to an obsession, and then to slavery. And you cannot move backwards in that progression. You can only move forward in that progression, and you're very likely not to stay in the place that you're in right now in that progression of whatever is addicting you away from God. It's like that lyric from Guns N' Roses, Mr. Brownstone, about heroin addiction and opioid addiction. I used to do a little, but a little wouldn't do it, so a little got more and more. That's how it works. When you say, I'm going to build my life over here, and then in the future, that's when I'm going to be all in with God in the future. You're not. You're not. You know, Kierkegaard in Sickness Unto Death defined sin as building your identity on something other than God. You know, C.S. Lewis described this whole dynamic uh, when, when, when he was unpacking the, the definition of hell as he understood it. Uh, it's in The Great Divorce. Pretty masterful book there. He says, hell begins, Lewis does, with a mood. It starts with a mood. And he uses grumbling as, as an example. He says, hell begins for some people with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you're still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself, wish that you could stop the grumbling mood, but there may come a day when you can no longer. There will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing, which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. 
So the rich man, in his case, at some point along the way, his recreational affection for luxury developed into a hobby, then it developed into a habit, then it developed into uh, something that he thought was a need, then it developed into an obsession, then it developed into slavery. And so, so his experience with hell actually began before he died. The road to hell is actually part of hell. That progression and trajectory from recreational flirtation to, to slavery, that is actually part of the hell experience. Now, there is a season where you can get off of that trajectory, but then there's a, a fixed and final place where you can't anymore. So for this man, becoming addicted to luxury meant that biblical compassion needed to become less of a core value for him and less and less and less of a core value over time. If we are addicted to our kids, then things like being a contributing part of the community or, 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 or the biblical concept of marriage, these things are at risk of becoming less and less a core value if I become obsessed with, with kids, 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 and it can work the other way as well. If my obsession becomes or my addiction becomes my career, then, 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 then biblical Sabbath becomes less and less of a core value for me over time. If I become addicted to money, then biblical generosity. If I become addicted to privacy, then biblical community. If I become addicted to approval, then biblical truth and integrity. In other words, I'm a chameleon in every social environment because my whole goal in life is to get everybody around me to like me. The biblical realities become less and less core values for me over time as I get increasingly and progressively enslaved to whatever else other than God I've given myself to. So that's how Kierkegaard and Lewis unpack all that. But notice where God is in this picture. He doesn't even show up in the parable. And I, I think, well, I know because everything in Scripture is purposeful and intentional. I think God perfect, purposely did not show up or make an appearance in this parable perhaps at least to, to remind us that, that when God's judgment is poured out on a person, it's actually very passive from God's, uh, from God's position. You know, in Romans chapter 1, it says that, that people got more and more, uh, you, know, you know, affectionate and, and obse eventually obsessed with, with their various sin patterns that eventually God stopped pursuing him. It says that God gave them over. God removed his hand, like God removed his hand from the Egyptian pharaoh. God doesn't strike here. He doesn't punch. He doesn't, he doesn't stab with a dagger. He removes his hand. He declares his absence. That's what wrath is. He gives you what you want. God, I want you to get the hell out of my life. He gives you exactly what you want. And he never loses affection for you. Remember, from heaven, this rich man, this arrogant, self-centered guy is referred to affectionately as child, from the father of faith himself. As Judas is betraying Jesus, Jesus calls Judas friend, friend, do what you came for. As Jerusalem is preparing to crucify Jesus, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem and says, how I have longed, Jerusalem, to gather you under my wings as a mother hen gathers her chicks. As the rich ruler walks away and says, I, I, I have to go with money instead of Jesus. If I have to choose between the two, that's what I'm going to do. 
It says that as he walked away to his own peril, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Ezekiel chapter 33, God declares, I take no pleasure in the death even of wicked people. No pleasure. You know, Lewis provocatively says that the gates of hell are locked from the inside. Hell, in some respects, is a freely chosen condition. It is God saying, okay, I'm going to give you the life that you've been asking for. I've tried to persuade you otherwise. I've given time. I'm not slow in keeping my promises as some, you know, regard slowness to be, etc. I desire that all would repent. But I'm going to give you the life that you want. This whole idea, you know, we say, you know, when you die, you can't take it with you. Well, actually, for the first time in, in like 30-something years of reading the Bible, I, I, I discovered that that's actually not necessarily true. Did you notice that, that this guy, even though he's not called by a name, when he is in hell, he's referred to as the rich man. So, in some strange way, he took all the stuff, all the money, all the luxury, he took it with him. But it gave him exactly the opposite of what he thought it would give to him. It delivered to him exactly the opposite of what he always thought it would. What was once just a mood for this man became a crippling, enslaved identity. How can we escape from it? Believe. Believe what Moses says. Believe what the prophets say and begin a new trajectory of starting to reorder your life around what Moses and the prophets and the gospel writers and Paul and Peter and James and the New Testament as well are saying. Anchor your life there. Anchor your life in the Savior who calls you child. Jesus Christ, here's what he did to persuade you and also to purchase you. You want to know how loved you are? Jesus voluntarily became the rich man who voluntarily went to hell so you wouldn't have to. Though he was rich, 2 Corinthians tells us, though he was rich, he became poor that through his poverty we might become rich. You know, we were at the end of the driveway, weak, wounded, sick, and sore, but we were also the, 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 the disintegrating, self-centered, prideful ones. And he says, I'm going to chase after you. My goodness and mercy, they're going to follow you all the days of your life. such that you would dwell in the house of the Lord forever if you would receive it. Our next, as, as Learch announced, our next series is in Isaiah. And, and right in the center of Isaiah's prophecy is, is, uh, is what, what we call the suffering servant poetry, which is a description of, of, at that time, the coming Christ, where it says that it was God's will to crush him, that he would be disfigured and marred and hungry and thirsty and covered with sores and ignored and abandoned and reduced to ashes, just like Lazarus had been in his life. This is what it means when the Apostles' Creed says that he descended into hell. He, he, he experienced the outside-the-gate experience that Lazarus did, but he also experienced the unbearable heat and unquenchable thirst and abandonment and absenteeism of God the Father on the wonderful cross. 
so that we could have a name forever as those whom God helps. John chapter 7 says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. That's Jesus speaking. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What are we waiting for? Give yourself to Jesus today, will you? Let's pray. Lord, when you tell us to flee the wrath to come, that's not all you're telling us. When you tell us to flee the wrath to come, you're also telling us to rush into the bosom of Abraham and into the presence of Jesus Christ, who loves and blesses the poor and the poor in spirit, and who has prepared a place for us and who has provided an everlasting name for those who will simply believe in Moses, in the prophets, in the gospels, in the epistles, and the poetry, writings of Scripture. Lord, teach us to anchor ourselves in things that will lead us out of slavery and not into slavery. And as David Filson always predictably and faithfully tells us as he sets the table for us in the Lord's Supper, Lord, help us to run and not walk. In your name we pray. Amen.